This is Iron Mike Stedman. And as always, I want to thank you for tuning into my show, the legendary Dog Whistle Brandon. I'm fired up for the following episode of DWB as I get a chance to sit down with one of the original category pirates and business author, Eddie Yoon, a self-described strategy Yoda, category designer, and author of the book, Super Consumers, a simple, speedy, and sustainable path to superior growth. I take pride in being an intellectual capitalist, what Eddie and his team at Category Pirates describe as the modern knowledge worker, unafraid of thinking about thinking and introducing ideas that unlock new value in the world. We have to read, write, and share our thoughts, something Eddie's been doing his entire professional career. During our conversation, not only do we discuss super consumers, Eddie also shares his frameworks for strategy, how to conduct research, and much, much more. If you're committed to winning in business, this is another great podcast you don't want to miss. All right, enough of me talking. Gunny, get them ready. Yo, saddle up, lock and load. You're listening to Dog Whistle Branding, brought to you by the team at Ironbound Media and Flawless Acceleration, where we're building the next generation of confident, resilient, and badass entrepreneurs and brands to keep you in the fight and not face down in a rice paddy. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, the godfather of Dog Whistle Branding, founder of Ironbound Media, and head of brand at Flawless Acceleration. Before we jump into the show, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter at the link in the show notes, or visit our website, dogwhistlebranding.com, to stay up to date on all things DWB and FA. All right, get out your pen and paper and get ready to build a Dog Whistle brand. Mr. Eddie Yoon, welcome to Dog Whistle Brandon. What's going on? Thanks, Iron Mike. Super happy to be here. All good on my side. Hope you're doing well. Before I hit record, I told Eddie I have been living vicariously through him thanks to a mutual friend of ours, Chris Lockhead, who first introduced me to your content, Super Consumers, as well as a lot of the Harvard Business Review articles you had written about category thinking. And so I've been, like I said, a huge fan from afar, even referenced super consumers in my book and category pirates. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, man, you're on my hit list of people to get on the podcast because uh, we have a lot of overlap, I think, in how we think. And one of the reasons I created my category, Dog Whistle Branding, was to convey that more isn't always better. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, particularly veteran-led brands, we think about getting more customers, what we actually mean, we want better customers. So more profitable customers, the ones that aren't the pain in the ass instead of uh, just churning and burning. And I think even with podcasting, right, that's my, you know, my point of view is that the future of publishing is audio. I think if Peter Drucker was alive today, instead of just 30 different books, he might have 30 different podcasts, but that doesn't necessarily mean every podcast needs to have a bazillion downloads, right? right? You just need to have that core audience who is really leaning into what you're professing and, uh, you know, and same thing with the customer segment. So really excited to dive into all that with you today. Absolutely. It just takes one conversation to change a life and change yeah. a business. So. so bring our listeners up to speed with super consumers for those that aren't familiar with the concept. Yeah. So super consumers, it's not, I, I wouldn't say it's a new concept, but probably with new applications. So it's good old 80-20 rule, right? The vast majority of anything, category economics, volunteer hours, you know, donations to a nonprofit come from a very small percentage of people. And so, you know, you have, you know, 
in academic circles, it's called the Pareto Principle, I think, developed in Italy around, you know, the vast majority of land was owned by a few landowners. And part of what I think is interesting in this day and age for business, like when, when I started in consulting, you know, 25 plus years ago, um, <clears throat> business moved a lot slower. And, you know, you had time to do the data, do the research and build your strategy and figure out how to grow. And in this day and age, because things are changing so quickly, you know, it, it's my point of view here is that sometimes a compass and just knowing where north is is better than having GPS turn by turn directions. You've heard of the stories of people that follow the GPS into a lake or they drive it into a wall because they're just blindly following it. Like, right. I think good executives, entrepreneurs have a good feel for, oh, the sun is setting there. I know where north and west is, and I'm going to head in that direction, even if if I don't know precisely where, because it's more important that I move quickly than get it all right with it. And so super consumers, you know, I, I started, the bulk of my time was at the Cambridge Group, which is a growth strategy firm. And the origin story of it, Mike, I don't know if, I forget if I've written about this, is that. You know, I would spend all this time doing growth strategy work for Fortune 100 companies. It would take 12 to 18 months. They'd spend a lot, a lot of money to get it done. And then I did some a global strategy project for Colgate and for one of the global brands. And I remember the chief operating officer said to me, you are the eighth consulting firm to try this project. Good luck. Right. I was like, oh, OK. So there's been a lot of bodies that have been laid by the wayside and Part of it is that business and brand was very fragmented. They made different things in different parts of the world. They had different data sets and they weren't willing to kind of spend the money to build a unifying data set to bring the strategy together. And so I was like, what do I have to do? I have to MacGyver this. So we took data that existed in different formats, in different categories, in different countries. And what I did was I was like, well, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So I have this, I know that the people who buy the most tend to be the most insightful about building a strategy. They tend to be the people who will pay a premium, actually, and that they have the best ideas for growth. So I took a data set in, in the UK, a data set in Mexico, a data set in the Philippines, a data set in Italy, and you know they're all different. They, they didn't speak the same language, You know, had no commonality, but... I could be consistent in the approach of what I did. So you filter the data for the people who spent the most at the category. And lo and behold, you saw similar patterns, which was, this was for a skin cleansing brand. Yeah. But it was that the people who spent the most, you know, took multiple showers and baths in a day. That's kind of obvious, right? But it actually broke some conventional wisdom because most people were like, well, the assumption is you take one a day, maybe that, right? But here's a set of people taking two, three, four, and sometimes in the day. And you're like, well, what's up with that? And then part of the whole premise behind super consumers is that they're weird and that there's weird data. And that in, when you find weird data, that's when you can actually grow the most, is that you come up with radically different strategies to grow because you're really bucking the convention of what the norm is. And so you'd find these people who would shower and bathe a ton. And then when you dug into the reasons, what was quite interesting was the differences and the similarities was that the differences were culturally like, oh, you know, we're British. It's about being respectful and polite to your you know, people. And in, in Mexico, it was, no, we're, we're from 
the, our origin and our cultures from the Mayan and Aztec culture. And we have a higher belief system about what it means. And, it, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness. The Italians were like, it's, life is about pleasure. You, you don't work to live. You, or you don't live to work, you work to live. And, you know, a great bath or, or a shower is a pleasurable experience, like going to the spa, even if you didn't. And so what we found was that fragrance was really important, regardless of the market. So you had to have these natural, lovely fragrances. It could not be overly moisturizing and it could not be overly drying because you were showering and bathing quite a bit. So overly moisturizing was Dove, overly drying could be some other, you know, more astringent brands that are more, almost more prescription around acne and the like, right? And you had to strike the middle. And what they ended up with was a campaign that said, smell so good and feel so good, you'll want to sing in the shower. They launched it in Latin America, took off. The global brand grew 8%, like no one, and they were able to consolidate something. And so it was really from that experience, I was like, you know, this simple idea, but applied in new and different ways, had so much power. I could move so much faster. Like I did that work in half to a third of the time that it would normally take. And it began to really open my mind up to, you know, I got to great outcomes with my consulting approach. You know, if a client had a lot of money and a lot of time, we could get to a great answer. They would make, you know, billions of dollars as a result of it. But I was like, you know what? I can actually do this faster and easier and cheaper than I thought, which is not really, you know, what my partners wanted to hear. Right? It's not really a good thing when you're part of a consulting firm. But what was very clear to me was that there was more to this. And so I started to do more research. You find that this 80-20 rule, the super consumer concept, applies in every category, in every country. My old firm was acquired by Nielsen, so I had access to a ton of data. And that when you kind of figure it out that super consumers exist in every category, in every country, they're smarter, so much smarter and more articulate than any other consumer out there, and that they allow you to ask them weird questions. So weird consumers allow weird questions like, hey, what would need to be true for you to pay 10 times more for this product or service? You ask an average consumer that, they're going to say, they're going to hang up on you, like forget what in the world you're talking about. But a super consumer is going to say, well, this category is so important to me that, sure, if you did X, Y, and Z that transformed my life, I would gladly be paid 10 times as much. You can ask them weird questions of what would cause you to buy 10 times as much volume or what would need to be true for you to convince your friends and family to enter the category in a way? And so these are questions that are weird. They cannot be answered by average consumers. And so only these people get you to that. And what we, how it ties back to, as you said, category design and Christopher was, it was a proven playbook and process that allowed you to figure out how you would actually redesign a category if it was in fact, you know, you had a whole bunch of new consumers that had never participated in it before if usage was off the charts, or frankly, if the price was 10 times more expensive or 10 times cheaper, you have a new category at hand. And so what really emerged was, you know, category creation and, and design is the highest form of growth, you know, and the lowest is competition. And the single surest and clearest way to figure out how to do that was to talk to the people who spent the most and cared the most about the category and let them loose and said, what would you dream about and what would you pay 10x more for? And let me co-create that with you. 
I love that. And it, even though you say like, oh, this is nothing new. I talk to business owners, all really successful business owners. And you ask them like who their perfect customer is. And they're like, mm. you know, they're still giving me the 10 to 40. And I'm like, how are you successful in spite of themselves? That's basically what it is, right? That's what oh, we're getting to. You know, what, what's interesting is we, we write about in Category Pirates this concept of uh, missionaries and mercenaries. You've probably seen it, right? Yep. And that what I have found, Mike, is that the people who um, don't know their customer, they're not themselves the customer of the category. I have found that to be case in case in point. And, you know, and, and it's fine. It's not meant to be a harsh criticism, but... But if you, you know, don't quote unquote, eat your own dog food or Christopher, drink your own IPA, right? You're not going to know what the customer is looking for and you're not going to care as much. The greatest companies and categories are when they're designing for themselves because they are the super consumer and they're like, I cannot, I'm so angry at the present. I wish for the future to emerge and I cannot wait for it to happen. And I'm going to design it. If anything, even if it's not successful, I will be happy. And therefore, and it turns out when you are the super and you make yourself happy, you make many other people happy. The business owners and leaders that don't know their consumers, my guess is they don't participate in the category. And they're probably, you know, you can be successful, but not as successful as you could be if you actually care deeply about it personally, too. I was thinking before we came to this podcast, what am I a super consumer of? Number one, podcasts. I love podcasts and audio in general. I'm the guy that plays it in the shower, plays it on the way to my studio, on my way to the gym. And I'm not like this Joe Rogan. Like, people ask me all the time, well, what podcast is your favorite? It's not Joe Rogan. It's like all these random podcasts, you know, because I just enjoy the medium itself. Like, yeah. when I want to learn something that, like, when Fox came out, special purpose, acquisition, yeah. whatever, I didn't know what those were, right? So, you know what I did? I listened to some random podcast by some financial advisor telling me what it was for like 30 minutes. So I'm a super of podcasts. I'm a super of coaching. So I invested in a business coach, right? Fell in love with it. Now I've had two business coaches. We're launching a new coaching brand. We're introducing this new category of acceleration coaching. But just like you said, I'm bullish on it. And the third thing is category design. So I've read every book, every newsletter. I read freaking What's the snow leopard like three times, sure. yeah, yeah. you know, but I'm and I created a podcast to allow me to dive deeper in it and uh, share my insights and invite guests on and everything. So it's obvious to me. But again, when I'm start talking about category, when I start talking about perfect customer, I feel like, you know, sometimes people are looking at me like I got a penis on my forehead. Because it's, not, it's a non obvious insight, right? right? And I, f I feel like certain people have still yet to hit the I believe button on category when it's all around us. Right. It's like, how can you miss it? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's I, I love that journey. And you're hitting upon probably the most important part of the book that I wrote, Super Consumers, was a super consumer of one category and a super consumer of many categories. And when, when you understand that insight, and, and you can kind of map out what the category constellation, like almost like a jigsaw puzzle, right? Then you get to so such wildly different strategy options for growing your business. But like, just as you laid out, I mean, it makes complete sense that someone who loves podcasts and loves coaching and loves category design, I mean, you're, you're a student of learning. You love to learn. You love business at some level. And and you're a, a business person who wants to be creative and, you know, you're probably, you know, 
I, I'm, I'm assuming there's not as much opportunity to paint outside the lines when you're in the Navy and the military, right? But no, <laughs> not at but, all. But if but somebody who has that discipline, that work ethic, and and can follow orders, but also has the ability to like, well, let me trailblaze slightly different. Like that's a skill set that's incredibly important, and is probably why you you dig all of this stuff before because like. It's there. Both skills are important, right? You know, you can't have offense without defense and having discipline and having creativity is, is wildly important. And category design is the merger of the two. And, you know, podcasts and coaching are all the ways you ingest new information, get feedback so that you can design something entirely different with it. So, I mean, I am not surprised, but that self-knowledge and that little anecdote you gave, Mike, is exactly what other people need to do is that your best customers have that same constellation and it's incumbent upon you to figure out what that is because, you know, one of the things I always joke about is, or is a hypothesis rather, is that, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about how technology is driving costs down, right? So technology is driving down energy costs. So the marginal cost of energy is going to zero because of solar and battery storage and, you know, renewable energy. The marginal cost of compute is going to zero because of, you know, chips and technology and, you know, artificial intelligence. And one of the things I firmly believe is that the, the marginal cost of acquiring customers, CAC, is going down as well. Yeah. Why? Because a super of one is a super of nine categories. And what does that mean is that if you were running a podcast business that you would say, hey, let me find a buddy in the coaching business. I got perfect client overlap there. Or let me find a business. Or let me find my category design brothers and sisters, and there's a perfect overlap there. And that more and more, what I think people will be doing from a customer acquisition standpoint is not spending money to buy customers and acquire them, and you know all that kind of stuff, but also really taking my CRM and your CRM, and we're going to do a data potluck. You know, you bring your stuff, I'm going to bring yes. my stuff, and we're going to share. No one spends any money, but everybody walks away with more customers and. That to me is the future of marketing. It's the future of growth. It, it has bad news and omen for advertising in the way that we traditionally understand it in all forms. But more businesses should thrive as a result of it because if you can grow your business spending less on customer acquisition, that's more money you can plow into innovation, more money you can plow into you know, designing a legendary category and company. And if you can do that, then... You can charge more. Like we are just about to enter an age of abundance like no other. Yeah. It's funny, as you were talking, I just remembered the why, another why behind how I approach podcasting. I use podcasting to build categories. That's really what it comes down to. It's like I'm always having this conversation with my clients, right? There's a segment of the population in audio that cares about the downloads and monetizing off that. No, I want you to be synonymous with an idea. That's what I'm pushing you to do. It's like, what do you want to be known for? And the podcast and having these conversations is a great way to do it. And you said something that I caught on to probably like two months ago of like, okay, as a brand strategist, I'm always writing these strategies and stuff for everybody, but things are constantly changing, right? And so how can I create a strategy that actually gives us a little flexibility, some wiggle room while maintaining that clear North Star? And what I've started to do is implement Roger L. Martin's playing the win framework when I'm briefing my brand strategy. So, you know, hey, what's our winning aspiration? 
Where will we play? How, you know, how will we win? But that's a thesis at best, but it still gives us left and right lateral limits to operate in. And then we're making decisions and choices and stuff. I'm trying to force the client of like, is that getting us closer to that North Star or off it? Instead of like, here's a step-by-step playbook, yada, yada, yada. Because stuff changes all the time. 100%. Yeah. Now, you said data, right? So you did all this data research and everything for a lot of these big consumer brands. But you know, a lot of early stage founders are listening. And one of the things I learned from you all that I'm able to articulate now is that data sometimes is good when you're looking at the past. But when you're headed into the future, you create new data for yourselves. So it can't necessarily be a hinder. You don't want it to be a hindrance for you. Mm-hmm. How do you help clients understand that? Like yeah. understand this idea that like, hey, we, it's, it's, we're creating a new future for ourselves. And so we have to create, we're going to take actions that are going to manifest that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, I always say there's two types of data data of performance, like, which is really about the past, and data about potential, which is about the future, right? And you got to have a blend of both performance data about the past, because you don't want to be disconnected from reality, but perform, potential data about the future is radically different. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of different ways to think about it. But when you when you're trying to look for predictive data, one of the things I find is it's really important to be a time traveler and that within So there's a concept I write about in my book called Super Geos. Right. And it's the whole idea of some local markets are way more ahead on purchase or advancement of a category than others are. And that if you understand that, you can actually see the future today. And so, you know, the the example that I give is I I did a lot of work for Keurig from 2011 to 2014. And, you know, it's shocking to me how many, some of how long it took some of the major coffee brands to catch on that single serve coffee was going to be a thing. And, you know, they would look at why, why they couldn't see it is they'd look at the national average and National average are my two least favorite words in all of data. It's like, what? Who who cares what the nationwide average is? It doesn't tell you anything about what the future is going to look like. And you're far better off taking, like, so if you took single serve coffee penetration data and you looked at it at a state level, at a city level, at a DMA level, or at a zip code level, and then you arrayed it from high to low on a per capita basis, you would see wild variance. Like the data would not be the same. That, and that's the misleading part of an average is it, 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 it flattens out all the nooks and crannies of the data and renders it useless. Like what's the point of all of that? What you're really looking for is the weird data where you say, why in the world is single serve coffee in Mike's neighborhood so much higher than in mine? What's, what's going on there? Is that just an aberration or are they just ahead of the curve? And what are the things that can explain why they might be ahead of the curve? And that this kind of search for weird is something that most people do not like to do because people tend to be uncomfortable with weird or different, right? And that's where I think all the good stuff is, is like, look, something special is happening here. We need to understand why, and we need to understand if we can replicate it elsewhere. That's really the magic of the super geo. And how you look for data about the future is just recognizing that, you know, we may or may not be living in a simulation, but not everybody lives in the same time zone, obviously, because, you know, when you look at like 
you know, California, way more percentage of the cars are electric vehicles than in some other parts of the country. And then you go to Norway, almost 80 to 90 percent of the new cars are electric vehicles. And so you start to wonder, is Norway an aberration? Is California an aberration? Or are they just ahead of the curve? And then when you think about it and then you say, well, what do they have? You know, high costs of gas or petrol, you know, uh, strong environmental incentives. There's that. But then also strong technology over, you know, that's the super one is a super nine. Right. And then you look at that and you say, is it more likely that, you know, gas is ever going to be way cheaper or way more expensive going forward? Is it more likely that this whole idea of green and green tech and caring about the environment, is it going to go up or going to go down over time? And then similarly, when you see that technology overlay, you say, is it more likely that I'm going to be, my life will be more affected by technology or less affected by technology? And the answer to all three is more, more, more in all three of those. Then you conclude, if those are the three things that drive electric vehicles, then the likelihood that the nationwide average of 6% of vehicles are electric is in no way possible that it's more likely to be 60% than 6% for a long time. And therefore, even if I don't know when precisely, I can bet aggressively in that direction confidently because I've done my thinking about my thinking. I've looked for the data that is available today that tells me about tomorrow through Super Geos. And I, <clears throat> I went down the Y rabbit hole seven times to figure out what it is. And so this to me is the, 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 the great value and advantage that an entrepreneur has that a large company does not is actually the absence of data. Large companies have too much data. They spend way too much money on the data and they're, they're almost a prisoner of the data. You can't make a radical decision because the data says that electric vehicles are 6%. If you're an entrepreneur and you're not shackled by that data, you can be thoughtful and creative about predicting where things might go and make a differential bet. And you know, frankly, that's the reason why entrepreneurs succeed in a way that large companies often don't. I worked on a project with a couple of my friends from Harvard Business School, two Marine officers, night and day, Eddie. I'm like, look, let's get a Google Doc and start going because I need data, right? I need some pattern recognition. I need to test my assumptions quick. They're trying to plan and do the processes. I'm like, listen, man, we got to move. Don't worry about that stuff yet because I already know how it is. And if we're going to run into a roadblock, I'd rather run into it sooner rather than later based off of real world data instead of like all these assumptions. And I see that happening like over and over again. The entrepreneurs that stay alive, we kind of have this pattern. We understand how it kind of works, right? Versus people is their first time in it. They're trying to be just so perfect. They want to do their little business planning and everything. And it just doesn't work like that. Yeah. No, I, I'm looking at your lovely visual with your commander's intent and engagement area. Like yeah, big companies, people who you know often have studied a lot of this, they stay in the commander's intent and engagement area. There's so much more value in just getting out there. And, you know, the one that I'm of your visual that I'm, I'm really digging is gain a foothold. Gain a foothold. Gain a foothold. Just try it out. You know, and, and like, you know, it, it may not be how you win the war, but the, the odds of you finding a foothold that is advantaged and that can get you a beachhead that you can bridge from is so much more valuable than planning and planning and planning incessantly until you actually lose the opportunity with it. And that th this is where, in, in my mind, super consumers and super geos 
And that kind of weird data approach allows you to move so much faster, test hypotheses in that, you know, you're far better off testing five different plans than spending five times as much time making one plan. Like there's no data like real world data. You have to go and get it. And that's part of my whole mission behind Category Pirate, but also why, why I wrote Super Consumers was, you know, it's a little bit of penance of like, you know what, all this time I spent helping companies, you know, slowly aggregate really robust data sets and make thoughtful decisions. Like, you know, that's okay in a certain time and place, but I have some real regret of like, you know what, we could have moved much faster and gotten much better data if we had actually made a decision and tried it out. So this is my first time trying to articulate this concept on this podcast, but in the Marine Corps, we have this term called movement to contact. So this is where you're a platoon commander in the bush. You don't exactly know where the enemy is, but you, we got to go find them, right? So what we got to do, we got to set some left and right lateral limits. We have an advance party, you know, and depending if this is a company, same thing. The advance party might be another platoon, you know, you've got the rear party and we've got, and you got your flanks and everything. And you're literally just moving through the brush, moving through the brush. And then if that advance party or that rear guard runs into the enemy, then you start acting. But it's a way of like stepping into the unknown. And I think that when we start talking about these things like product market fit, finding your super consumers, all these different things, right? There are some first principles we can apply, some basics that can increase our chances of success. Doesn't mean we necessarily know it's going to be right. But I think that kind of movement to contact that we do in the military can be applied to small business owners and and startup founders. I love that. And, you know, this is why I I just think your language is is awesome with that for all the your military audience and entrepreneurs you're speaking to. It's like, hey, your supers are your advanced potting and your rear guard. Simple. Would you go anywhere doing movement to contact without an advanced party and a rear? No. No. You know, and and you know what? Your supers, you're like, well, they don't work for me. You know what? If you are marketing the category, you work with them. You are on the same mission. That that's the part of it that's really, really important. Is that if you are an entrepreneur and you're not a consumer of the category, good luck finding an advanced party. Right. But if you are yourself a consumer, you love this category, you understand the mission behind it, you can find your supers and they're going to say, heck yeah, I'll run with you. I'll be your advance party. I'll watch your rear flank here and we will move. And you know what? They're going to say, I am so thrilled that your company is, you know, in, in both you know, in the business and the military sense of the word, we are looking for the enemy. We're looking to find where the edges of the new category are. They're going to be so excited to go with you that you're going to find legions of, like, legions of people to help out. I mean, there's a reason why Elon Musk can say, hey, I need help delivering these cars. And Tesla consumers come out of the woodwork to deliver cars for free. There's a reason why great brands and great businesses and categories have super consumers that are constantly evangelizing it and saying, you need to do X, Y, and Z, right? They're... they're in that that whole, you know, I, I think there's so you know what's funny to me, Mike, is that I always complain about how conventional strategy is is so predicated on military concepts yeah. that they miss the creative aspect of it, of category design and different, because it's all about competition, how do you defeat the enemy? It's zero sum and all that kind of stuff. 
That being said, some of the more, you know, the double click of the military concepts like movement to contact, you know, all this stuff, so valuable in category design that, you know, I, I, I actually think that, I mean, the military, we owe so much of the military for all this technology that's been created through and from them that ironically, um, uh, that kind of more than one thing can be true. Some of the worst things we know about strategy come from the military about competition and zero sum, but some of the best things that we know about category design are also concepts that have been built or can be leveraged from the military and that, you know, veterans should be the best at category design. Yeah. The the Marine Corps, honestly, we're like, the army is really good at planning. Like they're the best ones. They want to have the, they're, they're master planners. We do decentralized execution in the Marine Corps. You know, so we give you that North Star, we give you that commander's intent, but we trust you to figure it out and like make your own decisions. So we do have that flexibility built in. And I'm glad you saw the languaging that I'm trying to introduce. I'm still in the early stages of it, but that's a million dollar insight for me of putting the super consumer in the advanced party and the rear guard, because that's going to be the, they're going to be like a magnet, right? Because they're going to know where the other watering holes, they're going to know what to look for. Hundred percent, and and you know what? It's it's going to be. You know what's hilarious, Mike, is that we can we can riff on this concept all day long. Is that they're not only the advanced party, but when they come into contact with the enemy, a competitive brand or company, those are their super consumers too, right? So it's you know it, it it'll be it's it's not going to be antagonistic. It's going to be oh okay, I see you, competitor. You're here. This is where you want to be. Got it. The advanced party can come back and say, man, you could go there. They are already there. And the beauty of a super consumer, because they buy the category, not just your business and brand, is they will tell you the good and the bad and the ugly of your brand and your business vis-a-vis everything else in the category, right? So not only are they going to be like, oh, you know, we got contact here. Your enemy is over there. But... They suck at X, Y, and Z, and you are amazing at A, B, and C. Therefore, you should not be afraid. Go for it. Or they're going to say, no, you know what? For this particular use case, they're really good. And I'm sorry, you do not have it. Move on. Go somewhere else with it. You are a strategist, and I feel like you lean into it, right? Intellectual capitalist, right? You write the books, right? You sell these visions. You create category pirates. But for early stage founders, right? How do you get them to buy into strategy, let alone implement it? Because I, I see a lot of people, they'll come in, they'll do the strategy work, et cetera, but then they don't actually implement it, right? Yeah. Like I have a client right now that I'm working with, right? And just like you said, like I can't predict the past, but we're focusing on tech enablement for nonprofits. And here's what I do know, that like everyone is going to be tech enabled at some point or they're mm-hmm. just going to die. That's a fact, right? If you want to compete, in this market space, and you want to be sustainable, you're going to have to have a tech component to your nonprofit, to your small business and stuff, et cetera. And then when you start talking about super consumers, none of them are represented on the website and the branding. So it's like, oh, they do all this work, but they're not implementing it. And so like, how do you get them to nudge? And what does that look like? Well, you know, one of the key things that I think about Actually, we, we've written about this as well. You know, the whole idea of thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking is that I let people self-select, whether it's large company or entrepreneurs, however you want to come at it. And I, I say, look, 
there's three types of strategy. You can be the winner. That's competitive strategy. And that's predicated on, you know, whatever I do, better product, lower price, doesn't matter. I just want to win, gain more market share. I go up, you go down. That's kind of the mindset there. Second type of strategy is be the best. You know, I may or may not have the most market share, but I will darn sure Tutin have the best product, the best technology, the best sales force, the best marketing, the best cost structure, whatever else it is. And that's what they stand for. And that's their whole fixation is how do I make sure I'm the best? You know, and you think about all the books that have been written about that stuff, right? You know, Competitive Strategy by Michael Porter on the first one, Good to Great, Jim Collins, second one, like the vast majority of business books and thinking on strategy fall into one of those two camps. Third strategy is be different. You know, I'm going to create something new. I'm going to fill a missing in the category that doesn't yet exist. And you know what? Like if you, I, I care less about what has been done versus what could be done. And that's where category design and super consumers really lends itself nicely to that. And so what, what I often say is that, look, you are probably one of those three camps. And you may not be aware at a, at a conscious level that you, that's how you think. Because I, I guarantee you, your friends at, from HBS have been trained to think competitively or and be the best. It's one of those two. They, they are not trained to be different, right? And so the, the just recognizing and allowing people to self-identify where they are makes a huge difference. And at least you know what you're working with. So then now you're not speaking a different language to them if they're speaking in the language of competition or they're thinking about the language of, you know, being the best in X, Y, and Z. And that, you know, what I'll often say is that you can be successful in any one of the three, but the greatest abundance and highest odds for exponential success comes from being different in creation. And that may not be you. That might be wildly uncomfortable and you're just better off at like, look, no, I'm just going to undercut them on price. I'm going to move faster than them. I'm going to offer more benefits. And that's what I want to do. Or, you know, I'm just going to speak to the people who care about technology for technology's sake and just market to them. And that's good. But at least that way, you know what kind of entrepreneur you're working with and that you can have a clear conversation with them about it. I love this because I just wrote a brand strategy for a client in the dumpster rental space. And literally... His competitors or the category kings in that space, all vanilla, right? They got no LinkedIn profiles, you know, they're family-run businesses for like 35 years, right? Nothing edgy, just plain vanilla. And you know what my strategy was for him? Be different. You're Air Force veteran. You're African-American. You've been to combat. I was like, we need to brand the hell out of your dumpsters like Captain America or something and just show up on the scene. Because when I looked at all the, the different ways that we could differentiate, African-American, veteran, you know, also worked in law enforcement. I'm like, we need to package all that together and stand, radically differentiate. And like, you can probably tell by just hanging out with me, like I go with being different. Right? I just don't like being vanilla. Yeah. And then if you're not getting through to an entrepreneur or an executive, it's probably because they're stuck in one of the first two buckets. And, the, and you're, you're, you're speaking French to them and they're speaking Japanese, right? And so, but what, what, I, what I love about your dumpster example there is, 
you know, this is one other tool and technique that you can use to kind of ferret out which kind of strategy bucket do you fall into is, you know, people talk about product market fit, which we don't like because it assumes the past, but we like founder problem fit. Yep. Right. And so what you just said was great. You're, you're a military vet, you're African-American, you've seen combat, you're ex-law enforcement. Founder, that's your founder story. Now, how does that fit to the problem that you are trying to solve? Right. And that when you can explain this founder and their backstory is so perfectly suited to this particular category problem, then any prospective customer, investor, or recruit is going to say, I don't know if this is going to work, but I know who they are and I know why they care. And those two things up the odds of success in a way that is just like different than why a product market fit. My product fits an existing market and therefore I have a chance to win. But there's nothing quite like founder problem fit of like, we may or may not have, not have a problem, but a product, but I know this founder takes this problem deeply personally and that he or she will not sleep or rest until it's solved. And that if I put my money either as a customer or an investor or my time as an employee with this person, that at least I know they care quite deeply and they're going to move like it matters um, versus somebody who's like, well, you know, I was looking for the easy thing or this and that. But that the, the very best thing you can do as an entrepreneur is founder problem fit. And if you cannot come up with founder problem fit, you're probably in the wrong category or solving the wrong problem. Avoiding speculation like crypto. Whenever I meet people in, in Newark, they're like, oh, man, about to do NFTs. I'm like, bro, you can barely use a computer. That's right. Like, what are you talking about? Like, you don't know anything about this space. 100%. Yeah, you, you're, the founder problem fit doesn't, doesn't match. And you're not, you know, you're not solving. What, what is the problem you're solving for? I don't understand it. And how do you fit in as that savior for that problem? So now you have a profound mind. You're an you're probably a autodidact like me. You've read the best strategy out there. You're playing at the highest level, right? You're contributing for Harvard Business Review, and you've created this amazing platform with Category Pirates. From strategists to young and up-and-coming strategists, what have been some foundational texts that you recommend, you know, I read, and it can just be including, you know, just Category Pirates based off of what you've been able to curate? Yeah, no, you, you know what? I would say... Two things on that front. One is I think there are any number of texts that I could I could talk about that have been meaningful to me. Like I mean, one one of my favorite books that doesn't get enough shine, I think, is a book called Why Not by Barry Nailbluff. He was a, I think a Yale professor. But it's it's a series of weird questions that you ask that I love of, you know, like he has one is like, what would Croesus do? Which is like, Croesus was a, was a very, very wealthy figure in Greek mythology, I think. is like, you know, basically, if money was no object, how would you solve the problem, right? And then from there, great inspiration comes. Or what if you flip the problem and the solution on the back end? So like, he was like, one of my favorites is, how do you solve for auto insurance and non-compliance? Like you don't get auto insurance. Well, instead of you buy auto insurance and then you drive, what happens if you put auto insurance at the pump and said to fill your gas tank, you need to buy auto insurance and it's tacked onto the price of the gas. I'm like, oh, genius. You can't drive without auto insurance literally this way, right? So I, I love the way that they think about it. 
like that that's been a seminal one but what i was going to say was like i think podcasts are the way to go like you said it's the new it's the way books are and that kind of content is going to be consumed it's far more user friendly because you can multitask while you're doing it and it makes you know contributes to different ways of learning but you know part of what i would suggest is you know so reading not everybody is a bookworm um yet the people who read there are certain books that they go to over and over again i would just find the book that you like the most and keep reading that author or books like that right so like you know i'm a big michael lewis fan ever since liar's poker and i've read every book that he's written like i just dig his work and i don't read you know it's not like i'm consuming vast quantities of books but when at least you know what you like to consume and writers that you like to read, then you're more likely to actually consume and read it in the first place, right? Like consuming knowledge in any way, shape or form is really important. So reading it or podcasts or, you know, sub stacks like category parts. The second bit is I always say, in addition to read, you have to write. You have to write deliberate practice, right? Yeah. You, you gotta put that 10,000 hours in, but like importantly, your writing will inform your reading and vice versa, and both will inform your doing. But, you know, I always tell people, keep a business journal. You can keep a personal journal too. That's all great, but keep a business journal. And it's so important to capture what are you learning in your day job? Um, what gives you energy? What drains you of energy? What can I figure out how to do more of the thing that gives me energy and how do I do less of that thing? And that some of this is really just like... I, I firmly believe that everyone can be like you, Mike, and consume, be coached, and, and you know, be a category design participant. But it's a function of you being self-aware about what makes you tick, what gives you energy. And that most people I find are not super self-aware of that. And that's where the problem first stands is that they're like, oh, I don't have time to read. No, you haven't figured out what you like to read. That's your issue, not not that the books themselves. So. I love your comment about writing, and I'm noticing myself like my admin when I write the brand strategy, she sends it out, and lately she's been like, "These are badass." Like she's watching the progress go from yeah. since I started implementing it into my my business model. So like I don't write proposals, Eddie. I do a brand probe, you know, just like you probe enemy's defense, right? I probe their brand, and so I start off any services with us with an initial engagement. And I do that to create the brand strategy. So I do wow. an hour and a half deep dive interview and I write the brand strategy. And at first it was really hard because I'm spending a lot of time on this. And then lately I've been leaning into it, leaning into it. And it's crazy how my team behind the scenes is noticing. They're like, yo, Mike's not messing around. And I'm finding myself up against it now, writing out these point of views, right? And that's why I reference the term deliberate practice because yeah. everybody thinks this stuff is instant success. It's not just like even doing this podcast, right? This takes time to learn. You got to show up. And it's the same thing with writing. You show up, you show up. And so I'm working on creating badass point of views for my clients as well. I love it. No, it's great. And you know what? It's, I wish I had started writing sooner because it, 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 it's one of these, they don't teach you to do this in school. Um, you learn by doing and, 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 you know, and so like, I, I'm, I'm, it's exciting to hear you talk about like your team is like, oh, wow, Mike's really, you know, that's leveling up and all that. And then, I mean, the other part of it is like, 
you know, I, I'm just so taken, like there, there's probably no institution that's more respected for its execution than the military. And, you know, what you were describing, probing your defense, like, or probing, like, I love that. It, it's, it's, it's more weird data that you're gathering. You're not, it's not going to cost you a lot. And that my, my sense of it is because the military is so outcome focused and that some, not enough businesses are as outcome focused as they need to be, that there's probably books upon books and chapters of content that you're like, oh, wait, this is kind of second nature to me from as a military veteran that most people in business don't talk about. Like probing the defense is fantastic. I, I, it's, it's one of those things my... Uh, my old Anheuser-Busch client, you know, they would always get hacked off at Miller and Coors and do all of that kind of stuff. And they would respond because they were the big dog with overwhelming force. And I'm like, you didn't really need to do that. You could have probed the defense and save yourself a little bit of money. <laughs> yeah. What about this? Early on, we started a conversation with the importance of doing research, right? And you and I know the guys that do, oh, we've done the market research, yada, yada, yada. But I do think there's time and place for research. And so I'm curious to know, like, how do you approach it now, particularly when you're doing like sprints? Because I do also brand sprints. I'm probably going to rename that, give it a better language for now. But, you know, like and I do my basic research, right? I go look at the competitors. I'm in Google. But I'm just curious to know, like, best practices for you on like that kind of micro research. Yeah, I mean, I, I would stick to what I was talking about. What is my weird data Mount Rushmore? Tell me, I, I don't need all that information. I don't need comprehensive stuff. Like people can do that, but that costs money and time. Tell me the four weirdest things you know about the category or business. That's all I really need to know, right? I mean, th this whole ability to identify um, this weird data confirm that it's weird for legit reasons and then dig deep into if this is the weird data, my Mount Rushmore of weird data. And as a result of this, I, I believe I know that it's true. I know what the root causes of it are. And they those root causes run deep. Those roots are super, super deep. And therefore I can build a wildly creative and different strategy on it. Perfect. Like I, I'm a big believer in, in nowadays that you don't need a lot of data and a lot of research. You just, if you have one really weird bit of information that's robust and has deep roots and you can go down to those roots and then figure out a what if strategy from that, then you're good so to go. Even thinking about like your Keurig example, right? That area code probably had a lot of office buildings. Right. 100%. And then that's when you were like, oh, wait a minute, you know, and that was whole Curex thing was like all these business owners, they don't want their staff hanging out at Starbucks for an hour and a half, you know, waiting on a mocha latte. You know, they would very much rather invest in a Keurig single serve coffee machine, you know, and it makes sense. And then guess who's the super consumer of Keurig yeah. building offices, business owners, et cetera. You nailed it. You nailed it. I mean, that that that's the part is like just that one insight. You can go, you, you, you could build an entire strategy around. And it's, it's one of those things where the weird data, a lot, entrepreneurs, you know, it's shiny new toy syndrome. Like you're chasing this, got to do that. I, you feel yeah. overwhelmed. What I will tell you is that if you find the weirdest data and you can confirm its power, then even if you forget to do 12 things, you'll be all right. Cause you're doing yeah. the right, right thing. What I appreciate the most about category pirates is the language y'all are introducing. 
And just like psychology, it helps you, you know, diagnose things before the self-awareness. And so like I live in Newark, New Jersey. When I first moved here, my car insurance damn near gave me a heart attack. I was paying like $90 in North Carolina when I was in the military for like two cars. Then my, I could move up here. My single Dodge Challenger at the time, the insurance was like $320, which I thought was criminal, right? So this is why I say this. You drive around Newark and other inner cities, you see people got their duct taper wrapped on. You know, they're driving with a missing door damn near and plastic. And you're like, what the hell? Like, this car is dangerous, right? Not obvious insight. Insurance is so high, especially in these low-income areas, that they drive around. They don't even have car insurance. And the car, the vehicle is what? Their number one way to get to work, yeah. to and from, right? So somebody can look at that and be like, why are these busted-ass cars even on the highway, right? But the non-obvious insight is that they can't afford car insurance and that yeah. the insurance rate is so high. It's not just them. It's the fact of when they have rent, they have their family to take care of and food, right? Car insurance gets put on the back burner and it's so high that it actually prices them out. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, think, I think that's really, really important. And so if in, in, car insurance is too high, you drive a car that you're not afraid to get scratched up or whatever. And if that happens, then how do you drive as a result of that? You know, like there's, there's a whole set of ripple effects that have become really quite interesting. And I think, as you said, like understanding that and, you know, I mean, and especially doubling down on the inside of like, well, you might assume someone's going to be reckless because they are driving a car they don't care about. But if they have a particular job that they depend on and they need the car to get to work, you better believe they're going to drive carefully and they're going to be a different risk in that. Actually, you, you remind me of work that my old firm did for Allstate, which was, yeah, you know, it, it's ironic that safe drivers get screwed in all of auto insurance and because all your insurance is, is there. It's, it, you pay what you pay because they have to cover the price of speeders and people who are dangerous drivers and everything else. And that people who are safe drivers understood it that, and they, they hated it. So what Allstate did was we helped them build Your Choice Auto, which was, hey, Mike, I know you're a safe driver and I'm glad to treat you like a safe driver but you're gonna pay me a premium on my policy to treat you in a safe way. And that, and then over time it'll go down, but like, you know, what you're describing is there's a huge opportunity to reinvent what car insurance looks like in Newark, New Jersey, if you understand the local market and you understand the risks with it. And, but there's no reason why you couldn't do something for far less than 320 bucks a month, so. Sure. Well, Eddie, this interview surpassed my expectations. You were one of my dream guys to get on the podcast. You gotta let Chris know. And you've given us so much time and so much value. This is not contestless, contentless content. We're actually adding value to the community. But how can we help you? Tell us, you know, we got military veterans tuning in from all over the country, all over the world. How can we elevate the work you're doing, either at Eddie Wood Grow or Category Pirates, you name it? Yeah, no, thank you for that, Mike. Hey, Pirates is our mission. It, as a consultant, I can only work with a few companies at any given time. Category Pirates, I can share all that I know with as many people as possible. So I'd love it if anybody wants to, you know, jump on for a free subscription or, you know, we're happy to offer any of, you know, the Dog Whistle podcast listeners. If you ping Mike, he'll forward your info, email on to me, and I'm glad to give you all a free 
week comp trial for that. So that's not an issue at all. And that'd be great. Secondly, I'm part of a, another business called Glow2 Facial. It's a next-gen facial. And we just had our brand launch. It's oxygenation. It uses their body's natural superpowers to heal from the inside out. It's, it's a great facial that you feel stingly and you know it's going to work. And so if anybody is into that category, you should go check it out. Look for your local Janeo provider to go get it. So We'll do. And I'll do a couple of things for you, Eddie. I'll include a link to Category Pirates in the show notes. I'll also include a link to your book, Super Consumers, as well. And I uh, appreciate you for spending this time with us. For all our listeners, make sure you subscribe to the Dog Whistle Brandon newsletter at the link in the show notes. This is the top you like me to cover on the show or in the newsletter. Shoot me an email at Mike at WeAreIronbound.com or message me directly on LinkedIn at Iron Mike Stedman. Until next time, peace, love. Have a great rest of your week. Dog Whistle Branding is brought to you by the team at Ironbound Media, where we blend strategy, storytelling, and podcasting to transform veteran-led brands into dog whistles for your perfect customer. We believe that audio is the future of publishing, and we're committed to leading the movement for the veteran entrepreneurial community. You can learn more by visiting our website, ironboundmedia.com. This series is powered by Flawless Acceleration, a new type of coaching organization blending the old school with the new school by providing one-on-one and group acceleration coaching to help you and your team win in business. We're not here to wear name tags, drink stale coffee, and sit in conference rooms telling each other how great we all are. You can do that at your chamber of commerce or some other networking group. We're here to fucking coach. We're proud to support veteran and other badass-owned businesses at every stage of growth. You can learn more and get more at flawlessacceleration.com.